Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. what is old, but you long for what is new. Here's just in my brief 48 years of life what I've discovered. I've discovered that the older you get, the more you tend to be afraid of and despise the new. And the younger you are, the more you tend to reject the old and want to replace it by reacting with the new. And the truth is, we need the old and we need the new. And we need to determine what is important in the old and the new and what is really just preference in the old and the new. And so I want to talk to you today really um, in the context of the, of the people of God. But I think really this is something that will cover really our entire lives because it, it deals with pretty much everything. Do I get a new car? Do I get an old? I mean, just this everything in life, there's a tension between the old and the new. And so let's look to the scripture and let's see what the Bible has to say about it. Now, I want to just be fair here. There is no way that in the next 40 minutes, I'm going to cover all that needs to be covered in the passages we're going to look at. So in other words, we're going to leave a whole lot of meat on the bone. All right. I know that 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 is frustrating for me and it might be frustrating for you, but we want to just get a really good taste of what's on this bone and then I want you to go back and I want you to look at it more in depth. We could spend weeks and weeks examining the next few passages we're going to look at. But today I want to give you the big picture because what they were dealing with way back in the beginning of the church, we dealt with in the history of our church and we're also going to deal with it in the future of our church. So let's dive right in. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. So the Bible says, now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen, they made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and the large number who believed have turned to the Lord. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. And when he had arrived, he saw the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. And so what we have here is this snapshot of a conflict between the old and the new. So... Verse 19 says, now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution started because of Stephen made the way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. If you look at a map, you've got Jerusalem right about here, and then all of these cities are north of Jerusalem. Now notice why they were scattered. They were scattered because of persecution, and specifically named here is this disciple named Stephen. If you go back just a few chapters, you'll find that Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit. By the way, the people in Scripture who hear from God and who speak for God always have that same characteristic. They're men of righteousness. They also are full of the Holy Spirit, and they have a good character. Just just notice these little things that, that God uses the, he uses mostly those, men or women, who are, whose hearts are bent towards him. So Stephen was 
he was stoned. And as he was being stoned, the Bible records in that story that he looks up and his face shone with the glory of God. So we have this beautiful picture of God in the midst of this trial and suffering. But what that brings forth is great persecution. This wave of persecution that did two things. It caused the church to be afraid, and so they hid, not unlike what they did when Jesus was crucified, and for three days they were wondering what's going on, right? They went up to the upper room, they hid, and they prayed. But the persecution caused them to hide, and it also caused them to be scattered. Now, here's the deal. God used this persecution in the life of the church in order to fill the purpose for which God built and organized and established his church. Do you hear that? He used the persecution to cause the scattering. In fact, I would say he sent the persecution to cause the scattering. Why? Because the Jews were perfect, the, the believers were perfectly content preaching the gospel to those who were just like them. Because most of the believers in this day, they were Jews. That was their background. So because their background was Judaism, because they came out of that, that, that belief system, and because they came to know Christ, they assumed that the gospel was for other Jews, and which it was. In fact, Romans 1 tells us, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, first for the Jews. But there's a second part. It says, but also for the Greeks, or also for the Gentiles. And so God's purpose for the gospel was to the nations. But the believers in Jerusalem were just thinking of their own city. They were thinking of their own people. And so God sent the persecution. It scattered them. And what we see is that even in their scattering, most of the Jewish believers only spoke the gospel to Jews. So they were, they were scattering, preach, finding Jews and preaching to Jews. But the next verse tells us that there were some who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks. And as a result, a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So God was doing this new thing. But here's what we need to understand. What is new to us is not new to God. This was on God's heart from the very beginning. In fact, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 11, you will find that God's heart for his relationship with his creation was always for more than just his chosen people, the Jews. Matter of fact, in that story, we don't have time today to go through it, but if you look at that story, what you'll find is that God scattered all the peoples into the earth, and then he chose Abraham in chapter 12 and chose him to lead his people, the Jews, but he said, through you, I will make my name great, and through you, all of the earth will hear my story of redemption and the gospel. He didn't use those exact words, but that's what he was saying. So the gospel has always been to the ends of the earth. In fact, Jesus very clearly said it in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. What does that say? You will be my witnesses, right? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So the, it was always intended to go to Gentiles and Jews, but the Jews had gotten so focused in on their own faith that they were neglecting the rest of the story of God. And so God helped them all along a little bit. He scattered them. And when he did that, some of the Jews only preached to the Jews. Some of them began to preach to the Gentiles. But what this did was cause conflict. It caused conflict and it caused the Jewish believers to be afraid. And they were questioning what's going on. Why is, why is it that believers are teaching Gentiles the gospel 
Now, at the same time, something else was happening. At about that same time, Peter was listening to God. And if you go back just a few chapters, you'll find that Peter had a vision of a sheep. And the four corners of the sheep were lowered down into the room. And God said to Peter, get up, kill, and eat. And Peter's response was, no, Lord, I'm not going to eat anything unclean. That's against what I believe. That's against what I was taught. That's, that violates Judaism. And then through this dream, God says, Peter, what I've called clean, don't you call unclean. And so Peter's like, whoa, wait a minute. He woke up and at his door, there were these, these men who said, hey, will you teach us the gospel? And you know the story of Cornelius, how Cornelius being a Gentile, a Greek, heard the gospel and he and his whole household were saved. Remember, I told you we're going to rush through this, right? So, so what's going on with Peter's over here, and then what's going on with the scattering of the churches over here, and it seems as though God is doing a new thing. But remember, what's new to us is not new to God if we look at Scripture and find out what God is all about in the first place. In the church. Now, I say the church, meaning our church, meaning the church down the corner, the church down the road, the church across town, the church over in Pensacola, the church across the state. In the church, this is always an issue. It's always an issue because we figure out what it is that we're supposed to be doing and we figure out how we're supposed to do it. And we kind of like etch that in stone and we say, okay, this is the way to be faithful to God. But then as the church ages a little bit, we have new believers and we have younger believers and they come in and they're looking and they're going, man, you're not connecting with the people in the culture. So, so we need to do something differently. Or what, what you believe may seem archaic or whatever, so let's change it up. And the older group over here goes, no, 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 no. We've been doing it this way for 40 years. We're not going to change it because we're doing it the way God said to do it. And the group over here is looking at it going, wait a minute, wait a minute. If that's the way God said to do it, why isn't it working? And so there's this, there's this swell of animosity that builds up. It's because the young and, I'm not the young and the old, but the new and the old are constantly in tension. Now let's move it out of church, okay? Let's move it into real life. There was a time when houses did not have what we call a western toilet, or what people in the east call a western toilet. The porcelain throne. There was a time when that didn't exist. In order to go to the restroom, you had to actually put on your clothes open your back door, walk through the snow, and find a shack in the backyard. None of y'all remember that, probably. Anybody? Do you do? There used to be a time where that was the way that it was done. And then somebody, probably Mr. Pot, actually, I think is, I, I, there's some story that's fine. I'm not going to go there. Squirrel, okay. Notice how good that was, though. At least I acknowledged it, right? There, there was at some point, somebody goes, you know what? This is crazy. Why not just build a system inside our home where we don't have to get all dressed to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night? And by the way, if you ever heard the phrase, he doesn't, he's so poor he doesn't even have a pot to pee in. That phrase means that in the night, instead of going out in the water closet, sometimes they would just take the pot and use the pot next to the bed. I didn't know that until I heard that. That was interesting, right? And if you're so poor that you don't even have that pot, you are really, really poor. That's an expression that used to be used, probably not anymore. So... That was a squirrel, wasn't it? My bad. So the new invention of the toilet, I promise you, was not widely accepted by everybody. Here's what you would have heard. 
Why in the world do I want to put that stuff in my house? That's just gross. That just doesn't make any sense. How do we keep it from exploding? How do we keep it from smelling? All these other excuses. And then if you fast forward 20 or 30 or 40 years, none of us would say, you know what? I really would like to build a shack in the backyard. I really would like to build this little shack and so that in the middle of the night if I need to go to the bathroom, I have to get up, put on my clothes. And nobody would do that. Why? Because the old, the, the new became the old. And everything we do is that way. What is new eventually becomes old, and what is old will eventually become new again. The way you would understand that is to look at what people wear. It used to be that hairstyles were different than they are now. It used to be that hairstyles back in the 80s were like, I mean, they announced your coming, right? If you were a girl in the 80s, you spent lots and lots of time, how many of y'all remember that? Let me see your hands. Right? Big hair 80s, and then it changed, but I can promise you it will come back at some point. And the people doing it will be like, look how cool we are. And the old people are like, are you kidding me, man? I invented that like 100 years ago. It's just the way it is. And so the gospel was spreading, and because it was spreading, it was causing this tension. It was causing this struggle. And the question is, what do we do about it? What do we do about this tension between the old and the new? Well, the Bible tells us that news, verse 22, reached the church in Jerusalem, and so they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. What they did about it was they investigated. They asked the question, is this right? Is this something we should be afraid of, or is this something that's a good thing? And so Barnabas went all the way to Antioch, verse 23, when he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of faith, and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. So notice what happened. Barnabas was sent. Why? Because he was a man who was a good man, which means he was righteous, which means he was walking with the Lord. And he was a man that was full of the Holy Spirit. So he wasn't looking with human eyes. He was looking with spiritual eyes. He had the wisdom that came from God. And he was a man who was full of faith. So he believed God. So the investigator was someone who was qualified to investigate. And his response was what? The Bible says he was glad. You know, there are really two options when it comes to looking at the new and looking at the old. We can either respond like the, the, the circumcised group did in Acts chapter 11 verse 1, or excuse me, verse 2. Turn there and look at with me. Chapter 11 verse 2, just a few verses earlier, says, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. They criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So the response can either be to criticize or to be glad. I would say that criticism is not the best response to new things. And criticism is not the best response to old things. The best response to both the new and the old is for us to go with the heart that is in the right spot, 
filled with the Holy Spirit and full of faith, believing God, to go and fully investigate it, is this of God? And when we do that, then we'll determine, yes, we should approve it, or no, we should not. Instead, we should reject it. I would say that the glad heart, though, was the response of Barnabas because what he saw was of God. He saw that this new thing actually wasn't new at all. It was actually the old thing that was simply understood differently within the context of the times in which they were. Let me explain that. So there was once a time when if you came to a church service, you would not hear the songs that we heard in here today. I know that's a shocker, but not everybody around the world worships with the kind of songs we use, you know, the drums, guitar, and, and even the lyrics of what we used. There was a time when the only thing you would hear in a worship service was an organ. It was God's instruments. It was, it was holy. And when you, when you heard that organ, you knew that you were ushering in the presence of God. And a piano was a barroom instrument that would never have been allowed inside of a church auditorium. Because a church auditorium is a sanctuary. And God would be offended by a bar instrument inside of a holy sanctuary. Well, guess what? Little by little and one by one, mostly out of just sheer practical matters. I say mostly, a lot of just practical matters. Pianos started appearing into churches. And then there was a duet of the organ and the piano and so if you fast forward 40 or 50 years from that point, what you find is church members who say the way that you worship appropriately is with an organ and a piano. They've forgotten that however many years before that barroom instrument had no place. But now the new became the old. And then you had this real shake up in worship and it happened about the 70s. It happened about the 70s, and really a lot of that came out of California because there was a group of people who strongly believed the Word of God. and They felt like, like the preaching, and they felt like the, the worship experience of, of churches had become stale and old, and they looked across the people uh, of their generation. And they said, you know what? These people need something to engage their, their heart as well as their head. Our churches are preaching to the head, but the heart is being missed. And so let's do something to shake it up a little bit. And so you had this whole thing with, with newer, more modern, contemporary worship. And the songs were really, really simple. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul rejoice. Simple, simple, simple. Alleluia, alleluia. Carry on if you know. Alleluia, alleluia. Hard words. Alleluia, alleluia. Uh, and so th this new style of worship, though, was attracting hundreds and thousands of these hippie people who never would have stepped into a church. But now because of the music, they came in. And when they came in, they heard the word of God preached faithfully. And they were born again. And they were radically changed in so many different ways. And the old school church looked at that. And they were really, really, really struggling. Because although they wanted to see that kind of growth in their own church, they were also afraid that the gospel was being... Uh, um, um, overlooked or that the gospel was being shortchanged. But you know, that whole movement out in California spread across the country. And it, out of that movement, 
was Calvary Chapel. Out of that movement was Vineyard. And out of that movement just came multiple different offshoots of, of, of Christianity. And eventually, the same churches that criticized what was going on in the 70s became the churches that were doing it themselves. Here's the whole point. When God is at work, it will not always be the way we want it to be or we think it should be, but it will always align with what God has said already inside of his word. So the methods may change, but the fundamental foundational principles of what God has spoken in his word will never change. God will never call you to do something that violates what he's already said in his word. Amen? He just won't do it. But he may put a new song in your heart. He may give you something new that, that looks new, that has the same roots, but just is going about the, the, same, the old roots with a new way. Now, this was the struggle that they had. Barnabas sent back the word to the church. And after he sent back the word, what Barnabas said was this. He said, you know, this new thing is in danger of going south really fast. Because you've got all these new believers, and so you have new believers without a whole lot of biblical knowledge. Without a whole lot of understanding of what the scripture says. And here's what we know about a lot of the movements that happened back in the 70s. A lot of them did in fact go into heresies and go into beliefs that were unbiblical. And, and they were in a lot of ways train wrecks. And now that we're 50 years past that point. We can see that a lot of those things don't even exist anymore. Because they didn't have the foundation of the scripture to support them. But other ones of the other of the, the parts of that movement that did last, they lasted because the word of God was central constantly. They struggled along the way, but they always went back. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Calvary Chapel is the most notable. One of the things you know about Calvary Chapels all across the country is they always go back to what does the Bible say? That's a good thing. So Paul, or excuse me, Barnabas looked at what was going on in this new thing. And then the Bible says in verse 25, he went to Tarsus to search for Saul. Oh, the irony of God. Oh, the beauty of how God works, isn't it? Now, when the Bible says he went to Tarsus to search for Saul, that word search means to find with difficulty. In other words, Saul wasn't just on the corner easily to be found. He had to search and search and search and, and, and take time and effort to find him. And when he found him, and he, said, he said, Saul, I want you to come with me to Antioch. And I want you to teach with me the scriptures so that they will know the God in whom they've believed. And so Saul did. Now, why is that ironic? Well, many of you probably know. But it was ironic because the very reason for the persecution that caused the scattering was enabled and ignited in a lot of ways by Saul. Remember, if you go back to Acts chapter 6, chapter 7, you have Saul who was holding the cloaks of the men who were stoning Stephen. He's standing back there in approval of the death of this Christian named Stephen. And he was there with the express purpose of rooting out believers to persecute them and to rid the, the Jewish faith of these, uh, of these new believers who were 
in his mind, teaching heresy. And then if you follow the story in Acts, what you know is that as he was doing this, God struck him with blindness and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he had a radical conversion, came to faith in Christ, and like, and, and as you would and I would probably, people were skeptical as to whether or not he was really a believer. He spent a few years learning and being discipled, and now come full circle, Saul is now going with Barnabas back to Antioch to begin to disciple the people of God who are new believers there. Isn't it amazing how God does that? Isn't it amazing how God always is, is I say this, it, it makes God sound like, like he's human, he's not, but he's always like a hundred steps ahead. He's got everything figured out. Our job is not to create anything. Our job is to be obedient to what God is already doing. It's to hear and obey the voice of God. That's it, in a nutshell. When you wake up in the morning, when I wake up in the morning, our only purpose is to say, Lord, help me to hear and obey your voice today. But let me explain something to you. You will never hear God's voice in something new that is brand new to you that he's never spoken to anybody else in the history of the church. See, there's a ditch on both sides of this. Sometimes we want new so bad that we can hear things from God that God didn't say. And let me tell you, God is not going to tell you something that he hasn't already said. He doesn't work like that. If, God, if you ever hear somebody say, God has revealed something to me that nobody in this world's ever heard before. At that point, you need to look at them and say, you need to go back to the scripture and you need to repent. Because God has already spoken. And what he's spoken is right here in his word. Now, he may have shown you a different methodology, but he's not shown you a new theology. He's not shown you a new characteristic about himself that nobody else in the world knows. You hear what I'm saying? God doesn't do that. The mystery of the scripture is not that, that there's a brand new thing about God that nobody knows. Think of the arrogance of that, by the way. In 2,000 years, nobody's ever known this about God, but he's going to tell you. He's going to tell you. No. No, 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 no. I don't think it works that way. God's revealed himself. The, me the, the, the truth never changes. The methodology does change. And so that you might hear. God showed me a new way to reach people. Okay, let's go back. Is that new way grounded in scripture? All right, well, maybe that's okay. That's what I'm saying. So I want you to skip over just a few uh, chapters to the right. Chapter 15. How am I doing on time? I feel like I'm talking fast, and I am, because I want to I get through this. In Acts chapter 15, here's what we have. We have this retentioning of tension between the old and the new. See, that was chapter 11. The church met and they go, you know what? Barnabas came back, says it's cool, it's kosher, everything's good. The word got back to the Jerusalem church. Oh, by the way, here's what's really, really neat. If you continue back in chapter 11, what you'll find is that the church in Antioch realizes that the church in Jerusalem is suffering because of persecution. And so the believers in Antioch said, hey, you know what? We need to support our brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem. So let's take up a collection and let's send it back to them to show our love to them so that we can help them knowing that they are the reason that we know Christ in the first place. When we get this concept to where old and new are not enemies, but old and new are relatives, their friends, their family, what we realize is that the new keeps the old alive and the old keeps the new from self-destructing. We need both. It is a healthy 
healthy tension. So verse in chapter 15, here's what's happening. There's a group of men who came from Judea to um, Antioch. And they were preaching that the way to be saved was through circumcision. Or in other words, you can't be saved by, by just believing in Jesus. You also have to be circumcised. They were saying that there was works involved with salvation. They were saying that because they were out of Judaism. And in Judaism, you had to be circumcised. And so they were taking the works of the law and imposing them onto grace saved through faith. And it was causing the church to be in great confusion. And there was great struggle because of that. And so what they did was send word back to Jerusalem and say, hey, will you guys help us figure this out? Essentially, you guys are where our faith was rooted. It came out of Jerusalem, so figure this out. And so Jerusalem gathered together in a council that we know as the Jerusalem Council. Now, throughout history, there have been, I don't know, seven, eight, nine church councils. And these councils have always come together when there was a crisis of faith in order for the, the wise uh, uh, leaders of the faith to be able to set some things straight to keep the gospel biblical. Uh, council of Nicaea dealt with, uh, with, with heresies. You, you, you've just got all these different councils. But this one was the first. It was the Jerusalem council. And at that council, the question was, do you have to be circumcised to be saved? Is there anything else involved? Verse 6. The apostles and the elders gathered to gather gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, stop. Isn't that great? The early church got together and they debated. And not just debated, it was much debate. They went around and around and around. This side said, well, you know, this is what the Bible says. And this side over here said, well, you know, this is what the Old Testament says. And they went back and forth. Listen, debate amongst believers is not bad. It's biblical. It's good. It's healthy. Why? Because if and when I say debate, we're not talking about this angry debate necessarily. The, the context here is they, they probably, there's probably some heat in it, but it was done with the underpinning of love. Because Jesus clearly said that my disciples are to be one. And I know that somebody in that council said, guys, listen, we're going to talk about this, but let's not forget that Jesus said, one of the last things he said Father, I pray that they would be one as you and I are one. So guys, as we debate this, we've got to make sure we're doing it in love and we've got to make sure we're one. But then they had a debate. And they had their different opinions, they had their different ideas, and they came down to the conclusion that no, you didn't have to be circumcised to be saved, but there were some things that they were going to ask the Antioch church to do in order to, number one, not hinder the gospel to the Jews in Antioch, but number two, to not cause the Jewish believers who were in, in, in Antioch to, to, uh, uh, to, to doubt their faith or to fall in their faith. So here's what they did. Let me read it to you. After there was much debate, Peter stood up and said, Brothers and sisters, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples next that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? 
On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus in the same way that they are. The whole assembly, verse 12, became silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they stopped speaking, James responded, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. And the words of the prophets agree with this as it is written. And then he, uh, they, he, he re recites some Old Testament scripture. Here's what's happening. There was a debate. There was confusion. There was tension between the old and the new. They, some were on one side, some were on the other. But the wise leaders of the church, the godly men who walked with the Lord, who knew the Lord, who knew the scriptures, they stood up and they, one by one, explained what they saw and what they heard and what they believed the scripture was teaching. A couple of things I want to pull out of this. Number one, in this church, we've got to have godly men who know the scriptures. The Bible tells us that a church is to be led to be led by godly elders. And godly is the key. It's not just popular people. It's not just people with good speaking skills. The most important thing is that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. You know the scriptures and you have a reputation of such. There are qualifications for biblical elders. We need a church that has, has these, these men who will be raised up to be able to lead in this way. Because at some point, our church will face conflict like this. And it's up to the biblical elders to be able to step in and say, listen, this is what I remind you that the Bible says. Without that, it's game over. Without that, it's church split. There has to be some sort of structural authority and biblical authority to be able to deal with this. So they stood up and they did three things. And I would say that this would be a great uh, uh, model for us to follow in determining the old versus the new and what we should do about it. Number one, they observed whether or not God was in it. The Bible tells us here that they described all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. They simply observed that God was in it and they were specific. I saw this and I saw this and I saw this. The second thing they did was they went to the scriptures to confirm if what they saw God doing was actually what God was doing. Because remember, the enemy is a great counterfeiter. He likes to take what is of God and twist it so he can deceive people. So you always have to take what you see and then go back to the scripture and say, does that match up with what the Bible already says? This is why in our culture there's always a, an attack against the authority of scripture and against the principles of scripture. Because if you can take away the foundation of scripture, then you can confuse a people, a family, a church, a nation. And confused people eventually die. That's what happens. So the scripture was gone too. And as they look and they say, hey, you know what? What we're seeing, God already talked about in his word. And then the third thing, they, therefore in judgment, this is verse 19, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God, but instead we should write to them to abstain from a few things. So they looked at what is God doing? They looked at what does the Bible say? And then they looked at who the people of God were. In other words, they looked at their history or their tradition. Now, here's the thing. If you know me, you know that I am 
typically uh, a starter. And I, and, I, and I like new things. Like new things are, are just marvelous to me. But the more, the older I get, the more I realize that if you take new, 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 you're always reinventing the wheel. And you're forgetting that somebody's already done the hard work. And you're really not only diminishing the hard work they did, but you're also being dumb because you're doing extra work that you don't need to do. So what they did was they looked back and they said, you know what? There are some things that have already happened, some things going on in the life of the people of God already. That if this new stuff violates the conscience of those who are already engaged and already involved, we're going to have conflict in the church. So, for the sake of love, let's do some of these new things. But let's also reach back and hold on to some of the old things, even though we have the right to do something different for the sake of love and for the sake of unity and for the sake of the gospel. Let's lay down our rights and let's hold on to the old so that all of us can, as one people, move together in what God calls us to be. So if you look at what they said to do, there were four things. They said, we're going to write to them and say, abstain from things polluted by idols. That would be eating meat that was sold at a discount at the market. So what would happen here is you could go to the market and they would have meat that was offered to idols in, the, the, uh, uh, in temple worship outside of Christianity. And that meat would then be sold at a discount. It'd be like the reduced sticker at Walmart, right? And so you could get good meat for a deal because it had been offered to idols. Now the Gentiles were like, sweet, I'm saving money. The Jews were like, we can't do that. If I eat meat that was offered to idols, then I'm... Offering myself to idols. And so it was this almost a superstitious thought. And so Paul addresses this. I believe it's in Corinthians. He says, look, you can eat meat that's offered to idols. There's nothing sinful about that. But don't do it if it causes your brother to stumble. Why? Because loving your brother is more important than exercising your own rights. This was a tough one for us. Young people don't like to not do what they know they're free to do. Simply because it'll offend somebody. We have a hard time with that. The older I get though. The more I respect and honor those who are older. Because what I realize is. I am where I am. Let me say it differently. You are where you are. We are where we are. Because of the sacrifice they made. And we ought to honor them. Because they deserve it. Amen. We ought to honor them. You would not go into your grandma's house and start rearranging furniture. Not if you're smart. Why? You would, never, you would never make your living room like theirs. My grandmother has porcelain chickens all over the place. Chicken, 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 chicken. In my living room, there's not one single porcelain chicken. Not one. I would not go in there and take away her chickens and put them in a box and hide them. Now, I will tell you, when I was a little kid... I, I, she was babysitting me one time, and I went in, and I rearranged all those chickens by height and age. So all, I had this train of chickens all throughout the room. And she was a heavy chicken collector, like, I'm telling you. I don't. And so she went, and she's like, what did you do to my chickens? But she said that I put them all back exactly where they went. So I did fix the problem. Here's the thing. I wouldn't go in and do that to my grandma. Why? Because I love her. I'm going to honor her. I'm going to respect her. I'm not going to make my house that way, but I'm going to honor her house. So the things we, look, in, in First Baptist, if you were to wear a hat in there, nobody would say a word to you. But they would be a little offended. Why? 
first, it's generational, but second, it's, it's this idea of wearing a hat in church. If you were to wear shorts over there, nobody would say a word to you. But there would be a little bit of angst. There would be a struggle. There would be this challenge of, ah, I'm just not comfortable. And so because we recognize this, we honor the people that we're with. Does that make sense? It's what we ought to do in our own families, and it's especially what we ought to do in God's people, with God's people in our church. So if you'll follow the, to the very end of this, I know I'm going long. Abstain from meat, uh, from idols, from sexual immorality. Now at this point you go, wait a minute. Um, so this means it's okay to be sexually immoral, but just not in this. No, no. What he's talking about specifically here is uh, it's the Old Testament laws. There's dietary laws. There's, uh, there's purity laws. And so he's addressing, hey, don't do these things specifically because they violate the conscience of the folks who have gone before you. So you got the idols of sexual immorality. What was going on there was basically temple prostitution. Say, look, stay away from that. And don't eat anything that had been strangled. And don't eat anything that has blood in it. These all go back to the Old Testament rules and laws. And we know that because for since the ancient times, Moses has held these up to proclaim in every city and every Sabbath day. And it's read aloud in the synagogues. So in other words... You're free. But honor and respect those who have gone before you because in your freedom you don't want to diminish their faith and you certainly don't want to cause them to stumble. But at the same time, I'm not going to say, hey, your new stuff is unbiblical if I look and see that it actually is biblical. And I'm not going to say, don't do your new stuff because your new stuff is different. Because different is often good. As long as it stays within the lines of what's really important. And we know what's really important based on God's word. So what they did was they wrote a letter. They sent it to the people of God in Antioch. And the people of God in Antioch. Verse 30. So they were sent off and went down to Antioch. And after gathering the assembly, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they did four things. They rejoiced because of its encouragement. Both Judas and Silas who were in uh, also prophets himself, they encouraged the brothers and sisters. They strengthened them with the long message. Oh, there you go. They preached long sermons and it strengthened them. Look at there. Yeah, no amens on that one, huh? And after spending some time there, they were sent back in peace by the brothers and sisters to those who had sent them. So in other words, they sent word back and said, hey, thank you. Thank you for writing this letter. We will abide by it. Even though we don't have to, we want to because we want to honor you. All of that to say, the old and the new has always been intention. Always will be. As the people of God, we must make sure that the main thing is always the main thing. Now, I will fight you on a few things. I will fight you if, I say fight, I, I will stand firm. If you want to say that, hey, we shouldn't really teach all of the Bible. We should just, we shouldn't really believe it all. We should only believe portion. I'm going I'm to argue on that one. That is a non-negotiable. If you say, hey, we should, we should uh, adopt worldly um, adaptations to the scripture. You know, allowing for homosexual marriage or allowing for, for different things that, that the Bible clearly speaks against. No, I'm going to argue. There's a time when you stand firm on things. And then there are other times... Like what colors should the stage lights be? Or 
how many songs should we do or should we replace the carpet with purple carpet or green carpet? These things we should spend very little time on because the enemy's real good about taking small things and making them big things to keep us from the main thing. We don't ever want to fall into that trap. Amen? All right, so here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to kind of do a self-evaluation. What old things within the body of Christ have you despised and thrown out with the ba- at the proverbial baby with the bathwater? What have you thrown out and not really given it a fair shake? And then what new things are you really doing because they're new and cool, but they're really not biblical? Folks, the Bible tells us that flowers fade, but the word of God stands firm forever. In other words, there are things that are temporary and there are things that are permanent, that are eternal. Hold on to the things that are eternal. Let the temporary things just rest in your hands. Let God take them, let God replace them. Hold firmly to the faith. Hold loosely to the preferences. And above all, love one another. Why? Because love covers over all. Find out more about 